Uh, my plan for these calls is first we can start off like if anyone has any topics that they want to discuss, we can just discuss those. And then um, after that, or if no one has any topics they'd like to discuss, we can go into some type of a discussion of, of like a piece of, of like a poem or a book or, you know, a video, um, an article, you know, whatever the, the topic is for the week. So I've selected a poem for this week, but first I'd like to open the floor to you guys. So if you have any things that you guys would like to discuss. Yeah, sure. So I know um, it's in many traditions, it's fairly typical for formal practice to involve sitting with the, with the spine straight. But in the last month, I've been doing a lot of experimentation with just lying, lying on my back and meditating in that form. And um, yeah, I'd say that it's, um, I've been getting a lot of varying results that way, but sometimes it's uh, much, it's like a much faster to re achieve relaxation in a, in a laying position than it is from a formal sitting position because there's less um, for me anyway it's less to focus on as far as the the posture and I don't get sleepy on my back the way a lot of people do I don't ever sleep on my back unless I'm you know traveling so yeah I just wanted to share that it was uh, it's been uh, really nice to I don't want to say abandon formal sitting but to have that alternative posture as a still very effective way to uh, enjoy enjoy the moment or enjoy the breath without feeling the need to be attached to one particular um, posture or another. Awesome. Yeah. Yep, that's all I wanted to say about yeah. that. Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> it's cool also because the main outlet of the meditation is the breath. So, like the posture is, uh, I, I will not say secondary, but it, yeah, it's like uh, not the object of meditation. So, the important thing is whatever makes you better focused with the breath and come into the breath uh, and follow the breath. So, also for someone could be walking even. Yeah, absolutely. And to add to that, you know, if you examine the reason for the straight back, it's so that one can maintain an alert mind, which is supposed to help with mindfulness and remembering, waking up, etc. cetera. Um, and this is actually, I guess, kind of an interesting point to discuss is, you know, what's more important that alertness or relaxation, right? And both are important clearly, right? We meditate so that we can let go of hindrances and relax in the present moment. Um, and an alert mind is often helpful when it comes to that. However, um, you know, like just laying down in bed can be quite relaxing. You know, that can be a way of clearing the mind of hindrances if one is um, careful about it. So, yeah, I can see advantages to both approaches. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so 
yeah anyway it's been uh yeah. it's, it's been nice to be able to um experiment with it and not as again not feel so attached to um the same not routine but the same strategy i'll say yeah for sure i i find like i like to sit in a chair like usually a comfortable chair of sorts and i find that's kind of like a middle ground because if i sit on the cushion and do the straight back thing i can find it quite uncomfortable um and so the like the tm people teach sitting in a chair like that's their you know version and they don't really harp on a straight back i think the language they use is don't be a statue you know, we're not aiming to be statues when we meditate. Um, and so I find like removing discomfort and pain to be helpful with uh, meditation. Um, and then the question about laying down is like, does that relax the mind so much that, you know, like one doesn't have the alertness to, you know, properly concentrate and it probably depends on the meditator you know it, it does and it depends on the day but i i don't find yeah. that to be true i think maybe maybe if i if i stopped for a number of months and went back to it and tried the lying down first and then sitting uh tried lying down it might be more distracting but my practice is fairly consistent on a daily basis so i don't find it to be too difficult to um maintain an alert situation or state no not at all yeah so and awesome. again some people just conk out on their back like that's is their that's their sleeping position but not for me no i have a difficult time sleeping on my back so i don't i don't feel that uh that drowsiness that catches a lot of people yeah <laughs> that's great yeah uh, have um yeah sorry, you Okay. You, you made a great point uh, also because, you know, I talked about the object of meditation and you said also the, 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 go the let's say, as me the term, the, the goal of meditation or the purpose for one which meditates, if it's better to be alert or relaxed, but also one could say there is like the big, uh, the big, uh, um, let's say, uh, the big box, it is like, uh, why, uh, what's the purpose of meditation? And on the, the other side, there is like the, the side, uh, why do you personally meditate? Because like in one, one, it's arguably vast and also with a lot of pro and cons, but also with a lot of, uh, you know, uh, studies and traditions and so on on the other side there is like the purpose the personal purpose for one which meditates like uh i don't know maybe the, there is a tradition that says uh, okay you meditate for purification of the mind or you meditate to attain buddha one just say, okay, I approach meditation because I'm anxious. So like I follow the breath and uh, I relax, or maybe I practice meditation for concentration. Um, so yeah, there is also um, one uh, in the making more uh, sitting meditations 
he can try also uh, having more purposes. Like one day he goes medita meditating out of anger. One day he just want to practice getting better at uh, not distracting himself following the breath. So it's good uh, that uh, you can um, uh, also try more approaches one day lay on your on your back one day sitting one day on the train one day perfectly straight with your sp spine straight so this is also the the uh, playful part of meditation i think that's a great question pancho to ask why why do you meditate robert why do you meditate <laughs> does the does the does the reason change from from day to day or has it evolved from when you started from now like why do you meditate it seemed like such a a simple question but it's kind of an essential one isn't it it really is mm. and meditating just for you know like the right and ritual of meditation i think that's why a lot of people do it is they read this is good for me they hear from other people this is good for you and so they think oh i'm going to be a good little boy or girl and i'm going to do the thing that's good and then they sit and they're frustrated the entire time right and that happens a lot um i'd say for me that's actually kind of how I started meditation is, mm. oh, successful people do this and I want to be more successful. So I'm going to be more successful by meditating. Then once I got into the practice, the purpose changed. And I'd say it probably even continues to change, even if it's only in small ways, you know. Um, but I think, you know, anything that gets you on board is pretty good, you know. Um, so, you know, even if like someone is meditating so they can be like a tech billionaire sort of a person, hey, at least they're meditating, <laughs> you know, at least they started the journey. Um, and I think it's better to start the journey than not to start the journey. So, um, you know, like for me, why I meditate, like I just meditated, you know, right before this is I find like when I do that, I build up like kind of a wellspring of joy and, you know, centeredness. And then that allows me to be more skillful throughout the day. So like my own version on it is I don't think meditation is only for the cushion. It's also for the cushion because it's just enjoyable to meditate. It's nice, you know, but the off the cushion benefits are super important. And I notice I'm kinder to people. I'm kinder to my wife. I'm kinder to my family. I'm more attentive at work. Um, in general, I just feel it kind of upgrades me. So as a, as a human, when I meditate and I generally have more mindfulness throughout the day. Um, so like the days when I meditate are pretty much universally better than the days when I don't, you know, and how I respond to stress too is a really big factor. Like if I'm meditating, I'm more likely to respond to stress in like a constructive and positive way instead of like maybe an anxious or fearful way. Um, but I feel it's a great way also just to like, you know, condition your stress response. But I've even found like, I also tend to be luckier on days that I meditate. So <laughs> 
you know, like better things tend to happen to me. I don't know why that is. You know, maybe it's just I'm more positively biased. It's like uh, one of those cognitive, you know, biases, confirmation bias, where you're in a more positive state. So you view your day more positively. But for whatever reason, better things seem to happen to me on days that I <laughs> meditate than days that I don't meditate. So, yeah, th those are some of my thoughts. I don't know. How about the rest of y'all? Oh, well, that's that's for me, that's really easy. I just go back to the 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 triangle of uh, wisdom, compassion and satisfaction. That's it. That's all. That's it. That's I don't really I don't really look for any reasons beyond that. Yeah, that's it. Mm -hmm. Nice. <laughs> How about you, Pietro and uh, Robert? Oh yeah, so there is like uh, the let's say the the knowledge for purpose of meditation, like the common knowledge. Okay, it's it helps anxiety, it helps uh, uh, concentration and so on. So it may be also the purpose for one uh, comes to meditation. Then there is the personal purpose, and then definitely there is uh, what you actually get from it. That is only by experience, because maybe. You know, like uh, um, I, I started meditating for uh, because I didn't feel present at all. Like uh, I was mm, on in the clouds all the time, and so I get passionate about uh, you know this thing about the present moment and everything. <laughs> and uh, then, uh, so mm, I, I knew it was good for uh, being in the present moment. And so that was also kind of my, my purpose. And then I actually found out that I, I got that there was a word into it, you know, because also uh, when I joined also the Sangha with Dammarato, he, he just uh, gave me this perspective about just uh, about just uh, how much is wonderful to feel, uh, especially since I'm a bad breather throughout the day, to feel uh, your head oxygenated again and feel the the fuzzy feeling of blood in the brain that it's like a, 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 a really powerful thing you know you 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 all the blood it's filled with oxygen and you and you feel really in the real time this this sensation uh, so like uh, may, then maybe you forget for for some time and you go back meditation meditating and find out uh, again this sensation and it's wonderful you know like sometimes uh, like uh, I see people going to the spa but I, I don't know why it's not should be the same like uh, having a good session of meditation and enjoy the immediate results uh, also in fact for the blood uh, oxy oxygenation and uh, yeah, also my purpose changed because uh, at first I was uh, in a group where we used to do some kind of vipassana, and uh, there you you usually it was more concentrated uh, concentration uh, oriented. So like uh, coming back to the breathing and learn to not get distracted uh, until they count to ten and then start again from zero and go to ten breaths and so on, up and down, up and down, up and down. And so there was, uh, again, another uh, kind of approach 
But uh, again, the structure is, is the same because the structure is the breathing. You stick to the breath, to the breath and you enjoy breathing. Uh, now with the method of also adding thoughts, it's very cool because uh, in this moment, in, in those moments when uh, you when you have also yourself to choose uh, the right thoughts, the thoughts that you think are wonderful and thoughts that you think are positive, it's beautiful because you learn also uh, on which thing you give importance to. Because in this moment, you have to choose a, a really wonderful thought that can uplift you during the meditation. And so you put on a scale like what do I think is it's best serving my interests. And so you discover also yourself, you know, maybe, yeah, you, you, you discover that uh, thinking, I don't know, um, I, uh, you say to yourself, I'm useful, you know, something like that. And you say, okay, it's nice to feel useful sometimes. This <laughs> thought sort of uplifted me. So you, you experiment also with, with this thing. Oh, sorry, I talked too much. <laughs> No, no, carry on. Like, if you have more to say, like, just go ahead. You know, this is an open forum. Yeah, so the, the purpose may change and also what you get out of it uh, could be not the purpose, but something better than the original uh, purpose. Something you sure, discover totally. along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the point about wisdom and gaining wisdom, I think, is really important and underappreciated, you know, um, like um, like for me, I'd say like the wisdom I gain from meditation is by gladdening the mind. I am able to act more wisely, you know, throughout my daily experience. Right. And like the question of also like what is wisdom? um is an important question right is is wisdom just something practical is it theoretical you know like another type of wisdom i gain from meditation and this is kind of a funny um ver version but is like just like coming up with ideas like i tend to come up with really good ideas when i'm meditating they just kind of come out of the ether you know um and i i once met <laughs> I, a Tibetan Uber driver, and uh, he had a picture of the Dalai Lama. So we started in his Uber. And so we started talking about Buddhism. And he told me his wife meditated one hour a day. And she was the source of all the good ideas in the family for <laughs> doing this one hour a day meditation. Like she would just come up with ideas. And, and they would usually be quite helpful. Um, and my wife recently started meditating more often and um she she said to me today or last night she said oh you know i just came up with a really good idea for our household and it was a really good idea you know um so it is kind of amazing how gladdening the mind you know has the can have these effects of just helping one to be more creative you know and yeah we could also see it like opening versus closed, open versus closed, right? Like the 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 meditation uh, is in a way allowing there to be a lot of receptivity, and then of course you're more sensitive to this 
whatever this whatever you're calling the ether <laughs> yeah. rather, rather than having the more hindrance based thoughts which sort of close things down shut it down right so we could think of it as that way too the closed versus open model you know just just for just for conversation's sake you know these are these are all just analogies you know yeah, totally. And, you know, one thing I've been paying attention to more recently is how I feel when I'm joyful and acting from a state of acceptance and happiness and a gladdened mind, essentially, versus, say, like a doubtful, fearful, anxious mind. Um, you know, and I go through both and I get any, you know, in any day. And the, the state of feeling joyful and happy is one where I, I feel more relaxed. I feel more of a sense of expansiveness and more open to experience. And I think, like you were saying, Rick, like that openness can lead to creativity and, and better ideas, whereas closedness, which is how I feel when I'm you know, or tight, like when I feel anxious and fearful, I feel like a tightness mm -hmm. and, and like a general, like narrowing of my perspective. And that is a much less creative space to be in, I find. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so anyway, well, let's uh, carry along now. Unless, do, do you guys have anything else to say or add or other topics? Oh, no, I was just curious to hear that, about uh, that. Okay. I will just say that, uh, yeah, the, the openness is also go, goes uh, with uh, together with alertness, I think, because uh, in alertness, you catch up uh, things happening also in the back of your mind as well uh, in the environment. So. Also, maybe some ideas, let's say, since we said in the ether, <laughs> you could catch also some ideas better with with alertness, you know, like uh, intuitive thoughts going on that uh, with closeness, you also can contribute also to anxiety. The, the presence of the of intuition can uh, if you are like in uh, refusal or in disagreeing with uh, your sense of intuition, it causes more suffering and more suffering uh, and so on. It's like a vicious cycle, but we, with openness, uh, like uh, you recognize that intuition is there to help you. It's not like an enemy that you have to fight with criticism onto yourself. So also with alertness, I would say it's, it's great. Openness and alertness. Yeah, totally. And I think it can be kind of an oxymoron, but I feel like a successful meditation results in a relaxed alertness. <laughs> right? Because relaxation can seem like the opposite of alertness. Um, but, you know, there is a way where one can be both relaxed and alert, you know, and that's yeah. kind of what mindfulness like that's what mindfulness means in a way is paying attention but doing it in a relaxed way 
Sounds like a keto, baby. Sounds yeah. like a keto. Because <laughs> that was that was the uh, the basic state of readiness that we were asked to 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 um, to find ourselves in and on uh, on the mat is uh, ready for attacks, but not anticipating them. And as they're developing, not t- not tense, uh, not tensing against them, but allowing them to occur, so that in a relaxed state you're able to guide and adjust and blend rather than uh, push or fight or struggle. And so uh, keto is, has been excellent training in that way for the mind in for that kind of state. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure, totally. And and I would say that applies to any skill, basically. You know, like a tennis player, um, if they're really tensed up um, and they've narrowed their perspective, they're not going to be open to whatever ball is swung their way. You know, or, or in my case, like I'm a writer by trade and um, it's good for me to be paying attention to what I'm doing. Um, but if I constrain my perspective too much, I'm not open to the flow of ideas. Um, and so, yeah, I totally agree, Rick. There's that, you know, <laughs> you know, like, like one must be both relaxed and paying attention, you know, at the same time. And I think that's kind of what mindfulness is. Well, I bring that up because when when one is being attacked there's a there's the fight or flight response that can easily be triggered right and so i'm not i'm saying not that aikido is a better activity but it's it's it has a great tendency to help one notice that biological button response and to be able to find a way to um to, to avoid that, 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 that reflex that most people have if they feel that they're in danger, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's important to uh, pay attention to those reflexes and then also moderate them, you know, at the same time. Um, as far as say like the fear reflex may go. And I think there's kind of this complex thing going on when you're meditating or you're in a state of flow where you're both responding to a situation and simultaneously regulating that response, you know, um, such that it doesn't overwhelm you in some way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and then perhaps over time, and this is, I think, like the conditioning effect of meditation, um, the response um, gradually becomes less overwhelming. Like probably I would imagine like that beginning Aikido student, the response is quite overwhelming, right? Oh, well, you're really tired the first few months because... First, you're learning how to fall, 
So you're resisting the floor or the ground. And secondly, every time someone is coming to you, you're responding in the more like natural way, which is to fight against them. Uh, the, the, the more skilled practitioners, they are barely breaking a sweat because they're able to move in just the right way with uh, exerting very little effort. So Aikido is one of those exercises, uh, one of those martial arts where you start off getting really good exercise, but the better you get, the less exercise you actually actually do. So by the, you know, yeah. after after 15 or 20 years of it, you know, unless you're, if they're really throwing everything at you they have, uh, you're really not doing very much, but you're doing just enough at just the right time. Yeah. <laughs> sure. It's kind of funny. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Yeah, I, I've noticed I'm, um, I'm a part of this other sangha, um, the Steve Snyder one I've mentioned to you, Rick. Mm-hmm. And but they have this course that's been ongoing that I've been taking about the Brahma Viharas. And equanimity is one that's been really important to me since my child was born, you know, seven weeks ago. You know, like I find like, like I'm sleep deprived. My wife is sleep deprived. You know, there can be a crying baby there, you know, and, you know, I have to maintain my cool in that situation because if I don't, it will negatively impact everyone around me. So, so I find like equanimity has been really critical as, as far as the Brahma Viharas go into maintaining my family harmony. And it was actually quite hard at the beginning um, because it was a new thing. You know, I'd never dealt with a crying baby before. I didn't know anything about babies. Um, I didn't know anything about, you know, uh, dealing with that type of a situation. And over time, I learned to drop into this place of, you know, acceptance and also like, I've got this, you know, I can handle this. And that has improved over time to the point where it's becoming like a reflex where I just don't lose my cool with the family, you know, and I just keep it very, you know, chill as much as I possibly can. And over time, like that's just becoming an automatic thing. And and part of it is like investigation where I've investigated scenarios where I have not kept my cool and I've investigated scenarios where I have kept my cool mm-hmm. and I find that there's much more benefit in keeping my cool than there is in not for everyone, for myself, for the baby, for my wife, you know. And so I really focus on this like equanimity to the point where even yesterday, like like there was a little bit of stress rising up in the family situation. Sure. And I just and I just thought the word equanimity and it immediately calmed me down. Just that word, you know, equanimity. You know, that's that's the solution here. <laughs> And just that word on its own, you know, so, yeah, I'm finding that becoming like a more automatic response for sure. But, um, anyhow.
Yeah, equanimity, because I think that equanimity also is like a place that uh, it's not like a, how to call a pedestal, but it's like more a, a very deep pool and you go deeper each time. <laughs> it's not like, uh, you know, the, the floor is lava that you jump on the sofa. <laughs> because in the meantime, like this equanimity is is uh, is like uh, you 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 assist uh, things that maybe uh, also in the first time that there was like uh, some tendency to react. The second time, something similar. You you say that you're a bit more relaxed in the face of that adversity. So like. Uh, yeah, I, 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 the beautiful thing uh, we follow in the Dharma is that uh, one, uh, when uh, it's it's interested and commits to to have it uh, part of his life, like uh, he he like says to himself, like, okay, I know what's wrong, and I will not do it again. <laughs> so like uh, from now on, I will get better. So when 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 I jump to equanimity, uh, uh, there is like this shield, you know, that says uh, uh, I will get better. If this time uh, uh, there was a slight setting of reaction, next time less. So you, you because you committed to it. So it's like it's also because you, you want to be positive about it, you know, so because uh, we, we, we don't want to be like uh, people that uh, say, I don't know, like, uh, uh, oh, this thing it was out of my hand, uh, next time you do it worse, you know, because we want to be positive that that uh, we, we are on a path and uh, the, the, it, it will get, get better and, and so on. So the positive attitude is about the, the, the path and the, where, where this path leads. It's it's everything because you 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 you, you talk to yourself when needed in, in a way that uh, that uh, uh, enhances and uh, points to the the little small steps in which you got better, and so you learn to see this this incremental joy that uh, that builds up in time. And so it's also a new new way to train uh, your narrative when it's needed. It, it, it's a new way to to train your mind uh, to to look at uh, the yeah the, the, the small steps that uh, you you do each time because also you learn to observe better each time and so you notice better each time <laughs> and so yeah positive attitude i think it's it's good uh, to create uh, really a um a mindset where where you can uh, uh enjoy your company and like be like uh, yeah if uh, if i'm uh, alone somewhere i don't want to be Troubled by by my own mind, you know. I want to be in good company, so <laughs> like <laughs> I want to create this positive environment in which uh, uh, there, there is uh, there is uh, the the right comprehension, the 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 right uh, the right see, the right view, 
so so also for you it's like uh, we 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 deserve to have this kind of mind because like uh, mm -hmm. also uh we 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 overs overs have this thing because you know we we spend all, all of our life with this this instrument you know so mm -hmm. like, yeah. <laughs> the best thing to do <laughs> absolutely <laughs> I couldn't agree more, you know, you're yeah, totally right. Like, like your mind is the mind is the forerunner, you know, as they say, <laughs> you know, and if you get your mind right, the rest of your life will follow. <laughs> if you get your mind wrong, also the rest of your life will follow. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, your point about the right attitude you know, having that positive attitude is so important um, because that can easily be lost. You know, like, why am I doing this? Why am I not instead, you know, trying to make a bunch of money instead of doing this meditation thing? Mm -hmm. Or why am I not, you know, going to the gym instead of meditating? Why am I not, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? There's a million different reasons, you know, and um and the fact is, is, and I think this is why it's wise to meditate, is if you get your mind right, you can get the rest of your life right. You know, the mind allows you to, like, especially with meditation, you see more clearly, you know, you have more joy, you have more confidence, you have more, you know, shall we say, resiliency, even. Right, because it's also an empowering thing to know about yourself that you could be sitting in solitary confinement in prison and find a way to brighten your mood. <laughs> you know, that's like the worst thing someone can do to you, you know, is put you in solitary confinement in prison. And through meditation, you you learn to discover that's actually not so bad. That could actually be a nice place to be. That, you know, that's not the end of the world if you're in that situation. And I think like that positivity that can come with that is, you know, very enriching for the rest of your life, you know, for all the other areas of your life. Um, and so there's a strength that comes with needing nothing and desiring nothing that can certainly be applied. So. Yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> um, any of you guys, we got more topics or we want to dive into the poem here? <laughs> yeah, let's let's look at the poem. Yeah. Great. And Pietro? Yeah, agree. Totally. All okay. right. Well, let's do it. Okay. One moment. Here, I'm going to share my screen. Okay, I, oh, great. So this is The Guest House by Rumi. Um, it looks like I actually have to exit Skype. So I don't want to do that. So I'm just gonna gonna read it, and I'll post it in the chat as well. I see it. I so can guys... see it clearly. No, you've got it. Oh, okay, great. 
Yeah, awesome. yeah, we can we can read it easily. Yeah. Uh -huh. So this is the guest house by Rumi. So I'm thinking I'm gonna read it just you know all the way through, and then we can take it line by line. So this is the guest house. Let us begin. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows, you violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So before I get into this, um, I just want to say there's multiple ways that we can read this poem. So there is a critical approach which focuses on you know dissecting it analyzing it generally being more critical there's a generous approach which you know focuses on finding insight and you know being quite charitable with how we read this and then there's also kind of like the Dhammic approach which is like what is the relationship of this to the dhamma right so I think all three are pretty useful. Um, and since this is a Dhamma call, I'm going to focus more on the Dhammic approach. But there are ways that we can read into this that are critical, and there are ways we can read into it that are generous and say, well, you know, Rumi may have meant this. You know, we'll never know for sure. I, I don't know if you all are familiar with Rumi, but he's a 12th century Iranian mm -hmm. poet. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, he's a mystic, Sufi mystic, and um, he has many beautiful poems about spirituality and love and friendship and many other such topics. So, you know, I tend to be quite generous when I'm reading Rumi, mm -hmm. um, but I think it's important to also keep in mind there are other interpretations of this poem, too. So. Um, so anyway, I guess we can start with like the first two lines. This being human as a guest house, every morning a new arrival. So if we're to apply this, you know, from a Dhamma perspective, one could say, well, this is a Nietzsche and also Anatta, <laughs> you know, uh, at once. Um, so the guest house approach is total non-self right because what is a guest house but a changing organism right it's a hotel it's something that is constantly having new members you know and old members leaving and the composition is shaky you know which from a dhamma perspective that's kind of like the five aggregates right like the buddha says that we're there is no self instead we are five aggregates of, of various causes and conditions. There's the physical, there's the mental, there's the, the karma, there's two others, I don't know, which I should know before I'm <laughs> doing a Zanga call. Um, but the bottom line is, 
you know, the self is this changing and consistent organism. And any idea of a fixed self, you know, doesn't really exist. And that's really what Rumi is expressing um, in this these first two lines here. And, you know, the every morning aspect is kind of a poetic flourish. You know, because it's really every morning, every 10 a.m., 1001, 1002, 1003, 1004, 11 a.m., 12 a.m., you know, it, there's always a new arrival, right? So that's kind of a, po a poetic uh, flourish there. Um, but anywho, um, the bottom line is, you know, he's basically saying this, the self is a changing, unconstant entity. So, also, if, if you guys ever want to jump in, like, feel free, you know, if you, like, read a line differently than I do, you know, and you want to express that, like, just feel free to jump on in, or if you have any questions, um, etc. So, uh, carrying on here, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. And... I think this has a lot to do with uh, both Anicca, like the the inconstancy of things, um, but it also has to do with, you know, from a Dhammic perspective, the Buddha talks about the four imponderables, right? And one of them is understanding the way that that comma works, right? Like understanding the comma machine. You know, we don't know what's going to happen. We can't understand the future right all we know is the future will be different than the present um but you know what the future will be we can't say right and so that's where the unexpected visitor aspect comes in and when rumi is talking about the different emotions here joy depression meanness um you know this is a nietzsche you know, and I, I'm sure, I, I don't know if you guys have had these sorts of moments, I know I have certainly, of uh, thinking, okay, I'm joyful now, I can be joyful forever. Or, oh, I'm so mm -hmm. depressed right now, I can be depressed forever, you know, um, et cetera. And that's never the way life is, right? And the way that these different emotions will manifest is not predictable, because life is not predictable right you know i could be very happy and then i get in a car accident and i'm not so happy you know it's hard to it takes a lot of sati to be happy during a car accident so you know there's right. um yeah there's this unexpectedness and however much we master our minds there can always be new situations that come our way you know so um, and I think one thing I found in my practice is the more I've paid attention and watched my own, you know, causes and conditions unfold, essentially, like I have found there will be more predictability. Like we were talking about, about equanimity, right? Like when I am equanimous, I notice when there's stress in my family environment, my household, that, um, things will turn out better, 
when I don't have equanimity, they turn out worse. So then we can kind of adjust the course a little bit, you know, to match, um, you know, whatever the best out, the desired outcome may be. Um, however, life does remain unexpected <laughs> and mysterious. And we, we may find ourselves in many different sorts of emotions for whatever reason. So now here's the really interesting and I would say controversial part of the poem for Dhamma practitioners is coming up here. So welcome and entertain them all. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. So this is quite interesting because, you know, at a literal reading of this, and I think, a, you know, more critical reading of this, um, it sounds like he's saying, you know, hey, if you're depressed, welcome it. Come on, depression. Let's just get more depressed. You know, <laughs> if you're angry, welcome that. You know, let's be angry right now. Right. And um, and I think the next line kind of clarifies more what he's talking about here. But um, I think like one thing I've noticed in my own practice is as I've investigated more and been more mindful of my emotions, I've found that I'm more friendly towards my unwholesome moments and thoughts where, you know, if I'm angry, it's like, oh, there's that anger again. You know, I've done that one a thousand times, right? And so I feel more comfortable with it. That doesn't mean I indulge it. I don't indulge it. But in feeling more comfortable with it, I can brush it away in a more friendly way. So I think a charitable reading of this is, and this is similar to what Pietro was talking about earlier, um, you know, saying, um, I'm going to act, you know, in a positive way in this situation. I'm going to take a positive attitude towards this pain. You know, I can do this. I can handle it. You know, I can, you know, fix this situation. And I think like if you say, take the word entertain, for example, you know, to entertain one's doubt or one's anger or desire or whatever hindrance may arise is to really, you know, uh, play with it. You know, and this is something Don Murado likes to talk about is if something unusual comes up in your life, see it as a new toy to play with, right? This is a toy, whatever anger or desire or et cetera is coming up. And that's a way of dropping out of alarm and anxiety and that like, I'm so righteous, I have to be such a good meditator status. And instead dropping into this place of, I can handle this, this is just a toy. This is something to play with. This is something to work with, right? And, and I think, you know, by welcoming and entertaining one's you know unwholesome moments you're in that moment detaching from them right whereas if you indulge them 
you know, and you get even angrier, you get even more depressed instead of entertaining yourself with the idea of depression or entertaining yourself with the idea of anger, you're going to create more dukkha. So I think this, you know, like, hey, it's okay, I was angry. I'm going to entertain myself with this. That's kind of reminds me, that reminds me a lot of this. It's a new toy to play with. And then in the next few lines, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. So, you know, there's this great Nelson Mandela quote, which I think has a lot of Dhamma in it, which is, I never lose, I either win or I learn. And there's also a story by, and I think this might be, this is a Taoist story or a Zen, maybe Rick, you can correct me or point to the true source here. But there's this great, it reminds me of this great story about this uh, Chinese farmer during a war in like the 14th century, 12th century, something like that. And um, the and uh, he, he has a son who is of age to be a soldier. And anyway, and so the Chinese government comes by and and asks the farmer, you know, we would like to to come by your house, you know, soon to recruit your son, to draft your son for the war. And and um, and the, the soldier says, OK, you know, that's fine. Hey, Scott. Great Hello. to have you on. How's <laughs> we it going? Were just, uh, good. How are you, man? Good. Great. So we're discussing this poem, The Guest House by Rumi, and we're on this uh third stanza here um so if you want you can just read the poem for yourself but um, i'll continue, continue this line. all Let right yeah no worries oh no problemo so anyway so this chinese peasant um his son is about to be drafted for this war and the government is going to return soon to pick him up to become a soldier and the, the son and the wife go to him, go to the father and say, is this really, this is really bad. You know, you know, like they're in a state of dismay. And his response is maybe, maybe not. Then the government official returns and it's time, and it's time for the war. And as he's returning, the son is out on a horse and he falls from the horse and he breaks his legs. And the, the government official arrives and, <laughs> and, uh, and says, I'm here for your son. And the son is now lame. He, he can't walk. And so he can't recruit him for the war. And the, the wife and the son go to the farmer again and say, you know, what, what, uh, how great is this? You know, like he broke his legs, so now he's not going to go die in the war. And the, the farmer says, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> you know, so there's these shifts in fortune, and we don't always know how they're going to play out. So when it says, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. So we never know how things are going to play out. 
And sometimes we can have a great misfortune happen to us that can end up being really positive. You know, and other times we can have something really good happen to us and it ends up being quite a negative development. Like another example of this would be lottery winners. You know, a lot of people win the lottery and then they find it ruins their lives, right? Like suddenly, you know, family members are asking them for money. Friends are asking them for money. They, they feel they can't trust anyone. They get into drugs, you know, and most lottery winners end up usually spending the entire winnings and with a host of problems in their personal life after. And some say, I wish I never won the lottery, right? So, you know, that question of, you know, is the crowd of sorrows good or bad? You know, oftentimes when we have things happen to us in our life, we don't really know what the effect is going to be. So, you know, that said, one does not have to be sorrowful, <laughs> you know, amidst the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Right. And I think, you know, this particular stanza here is Rumi saying, you know, unfortunate events, since we don't know how they're going to play out, why be depressed about them? And having a house empty of its furniture could be quite a good thing because that could be what brings life into your house. That could be what brings joy into your house, space. You know, that could be a really positive thing. So there is this, there's also a line here of still treat each guest honorably that I think is also quite valuable in terms of having respect for one's own situation, right? And like the word honor is really interesting um, because it implies kind of a respect, right? And respect has both like a gratifying and generous side to it. And it also can have kind of a cautious, you know, attentive alertness to it, right? So if, you know, the, the president is coming for dinner you want to treat him honorably, which would mean with generosity and kindness, but also being attentive to whatever may occur. So I think this question of, you know, how to treat one honorably is um, is kind of interesting and something that could be a whole <laughs> Dhamma talk on its own. But, you know, whether it's a crowd of sorrows or a crowd of good fortune, regardless, you know, treat it with honor and treat it with mindfulness. And I think that's what Rumi is saying here, as well as an openness to however our situation may change. So uh, moving along here to this uh, last line of this stanza, he may be clearing you out for some new delight. And that is really about having that right attitude of, Hey, isn't it so great my house is empty now? You know, isn't it so great I lost everything? Now I can fill my life with something better, right? And maybe that lottery winner that ruins their lives, you know, like maybe now this is a moment where they can be clear, you know, about what really brings them joy in life, right? Like by going through 
that whole roller coaster of first being broke and then having a ton of money and then being broke again. Now they can gain clarity on what really brings them joy, what types of relationships they would really like to have, etc. So um, moving on to the next stanza, and I think this is totally in line with the, the more generous reading of this poem, is the dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. And so I think this is where Rumi is really taking that attitude of the lion, that attitude of, I can handle this. You know, oh, a dark thought, ha, ha, ha. You know, I got this, man. And it, it's not saying focus on your dark thoughts, right? It's saying if you have a dark thought, aha, Mara, I see you. <laughs> you know, laugh at that. And in doing so, you are changing, you know, from the unwholesome to the wholesome in that very moment. So whereas if one is afraid and, oh, I'm a really bad Buddhist for getting angry or I'm a really bad Buddhist for being depressed, you're actually going to set yourself back and have more dukkha, less satisfaction just by doing that. So this, I think, is where by saying like there's a song by uh, East Forest and Ramdas, and it's called Dark Thoughts. And I really recommend checking out this album of like Ramdas and East Forest because there's some really nice tunes on there, some nice beats. But um, one of Ram Dass's little mantras in there is love your dark thoughts. And he's not saying like, go be like a serial killer or something like that. But by loving the fact that you're alive and you can have these thoughts and saying, you know what? I love the fact I'm having dark thoughts that instantly you're tricking yourself in that moment and you're switching yourself from unwholesome to wholesome, you know, just by moving from the frequency of dark thought to the frequency of love. And then you realize, wait, I'm not even having any dark thoughts right now because I'm engaging in love. And then that <laughs> is a way of getting rid of your dark thoughts. So it's like a little trick, you know, of, hey, welcome the dukkha. Welcome the suffering. I can handle it. You know, that's fine. And that's also the, the, the approach of equanimity. So there's a lot going on there. And I think Rumi is kind of trying to trick the, the reader into being happy. <laughs> kind of like Ram Dass in that song, which I can post in the chat as well. So now for the last stanza here. Be grateful for whatever comes. Because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. And this is very mystical. And Rumi was obviously a mystic that believed in God. And, you know, his version of God is probably is not really like the normal definition. I don't think he, you know, believed in God, the judge, the old man sitting on the throne, judging people. But if you read his other poems, he seems to have much more of an approach of we are all one you know, beautiful song that is, you know, playing its notes. And that's just great. <laughs> you know, that's love. We are all part of love, right? 
And, you know, it's interesting. I've heard it said before that, you know, one thing Christianity does um, focus on a lot more than Buddhism. And Rick, you and I have had this conversation about this before, is love. You know, in, in the suttas, there's a lot about metta and loving kindness, but not specifically the word love, right? It's not like the Buddha is saying, go forth and love everyone, whereas that's something Jesus was more known to say, right? And that doesn't mean the Buddha is anti-love, but the word loving kindness tempers this uh, attachment that can often come about in love. And given that we in the West focus so much on romantic and familial love, both of which are heavily burdened with attachment, you know, we tend to view love as a type of attachment, right? And loving kindness, by adding that word kind or kindness, that tempers the attachment aspect. And I think that's the reason for that translation in part, you know. But anywho, this question of, getting back to the poem here, be grateful for whatever comes, is I think, like, in my practice, you know, and I've been studying the Dhamma for like 12 years, <laughs> you know, for a while. Um, like, I find like in the spiritual approach to life, one sees their obstacles and their setbacks as learning opportunities, you know, of like, hey, this bad thing that just happened could make me a better person in some way even if I really screwed up personally. And I've had plenty of times like that, as I'm sure everyone in this call has. And so being engaging in an act of gratitude is, in my opinion, like that lion's attitude of, hey, isn't it great I'm learning so much instead of I'm such a failure? <laughs> you know, because the, the student, the reason they're a student, they call themselves a student, is because they're failing they haven't mastered yet you know they're studying and studying an investigation involves messing up it involves failing it involves having gaps in one's knowledge and being cognizant of that and self-aware you know and it's when one starts to call themselves a master that they close themselves off to that awareness you know that learning and then the ego emerges and they might not be so grateful for whatever comes, <laughs> you know. And so some really good teachers out there will, will often say, I'm not actually a teacher. I'm always a student. You know, I'm always learning. And that's a way of saying I'm always investigating. And the wholesome approach to that is being grateful for whatever comes. You know, maybe the sorrows that clear out my house are you going to open my house to be a really nice meditation spot? <laughs> you know, right? So there's a lot there. And then for the final two lines here, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Now, this is very interesting, and there's multiple ways of looking at this. You know, uh, Rumi was a Muslim. He was a Sufi mystic, and he believed in God, right? So one very literal mean reading of this 
is God is sending us <laughs> these various events to learn from, right? But, you know, a more charitable or Dhamma approach to this same text, you know, Rumi would probably agree with this too, is that, um, you know, beyond is just the incomprehensibility of reality, right? It's the common machine. It's the oneness of life. It's the four imponderables, as the Buddha says, right? You know, which include, you know, we don't, we can't understand the way the common machine works. So, you know, however, being grateful for what's coming because it comes from what's beyond, that can sound kind of theistic. However, you can also look at it as a love for reality and a love for life itself. You know, an acceptance, a love, a joy. And recognizing, wow, isn't it so great? I don't know why everything is happening. <laughs> isn't it so great? I don't know what's going on. You know, so I can just sit and enjoy. And it remains a show. It remains a spectacle. And the beauty of that there's something we can sit in a tremendous appreciation and gratitude for. And I believe that, you know, that sense of awe and wonder is very fulfilling. And this is from my investigations and something we should be grateful for. And so another way of reading this is be grateful for the sense of awe and wonder that we don't know what's going to happen. You know, isn't that just great? We can just keep entertaining ourselves <laughs> with the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or misfortune. So, um, so that I find a really beautiful approach. So, yeah, I love this poem and it came quite naturally as a first sort of a reading to um, focus on. So, yeah, that's uh, my little <laughs> uh, spiel there. Um, do you guys have any questions, comments, et cetera? <laughs> no, I, I, I thank you, Robert, for your perspective because uh, it was very enriching because it's a uh, uh, this, uh, you know, this exchange of perspective, hearing uh, you, your interpretation of that is very interesting and uh, very enriching. So I want to thank you also for this uh, uh, initiative of uh, of this uh, this call. And uh, very, I, I found really, really enriching uh, hearing your, your interpretation of this poem. It's very different from reading it alone. So hearing uh, somebody else, uh, else's thought and perspective about it is very, again, enriching. So thank you. Sure thing. Thank you, Pietro. I really appreciate your being on this call. <laughs> this is my first call. So, you know, I'm testing, testing the waters here. <laughs> and I'm enjoying it so far. Hmm. I'll say something about this. It feels like Rumi is playing with both a, a very um, localized 
uh, mundane perspective versus sort of an ultimate perspective. Just using words like joy, depression, meanness, sorrows, violence, shame, malice, you know, these are all um, concepts that from the, you know, limited day-to-day mundane perspective we can understand from a hindrance or from an ego. Um, But it feels like the poem is trying to push people towards a more of an ultimate experience of this all and trying to expand um, their concepts uh, beyond these small, um, I mean, fear-based types of things. Um, so yeah, I, I, I like that. Uh, that's what, what they're trying What you know, and of course you have to use language and you have to use concepts in order to do it. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's excellent to see, uh, someone do what's so difficult to do, which is try and move someone into an experiential state using, um, mundane, commonplace symbols like language right and concepts yeah sure totally and yeah you know Don Murado talks about the one-two approach right uh you know a teacher will meet the student where they are and then try and get them to take their thinking to the next level right and like um Bhikkhu Buddhadasa remember Don Murata told me about this, was famous for using a really vulgar, mundane language and talking about the Dhamma. You know, the hope being that he could reach everyone, right? And Rumi, I think, is actually the most popular poet in America today, which is hilarious that a Muslim from the 12th century would be so much more resonant with people than, <laughs> you know, any modern American any ho- or any homegrown any homegrown poets <laughs> yeah it's amazing you know it, it really is that he wrote this so long ago and part of that actually is thanks to the translator Coleman Barks who went and took Rumi's original poems Rumi's original poems and really modernized and freshened them up for the modern audience so so he did benefit from a really good translator but Nonetheless, the core message is his. And, um, you know, I think Rumi does a great job of using mundane language and not using language that is too fanciful, you know, or literary, which is, you know, one of my problems with modern poetry is it can read like a, you know, intellectual dick swinging like contest. A, like, like a thesaurus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically, you know, and so like I've wrote in my fair share of poems and I try to take like a more roomy approach of making the language really grounded and, you know, simple and easy to understand. And I find that to be a lot more effective. Um, you know, and, and a lot of great writers actually do that where they will use like simple language and do it in like a clean and concise way, you know, that can deliver um profound message you know like albert einstein is and he wasn't a writer obviously well kind of he's a little bit of a writer but not a professional and you know he was famous for saying that 
if you can't explain something to a seven-year-old, it means you don't really understand it, right? And I think that like clarity and simplicity is something that, you know, we should aim for in our communications in general. And I think that's a big reason why Rumi has been so popular is the clarity of his thought, right? And, and also, you know, like you said, Rick, he is kind of playing with the reader, you know, like when he says the dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. He's not saying, you know, like, isn't it great to have dark thoughts? And he's kind of saying that in a way because he's saying laugh at it. He's not saying though explicitly, hey, remove, get rid of these dark thoughts, have better thoughts, you know, by saying, you can laugh at it. That's a way of saying the exact same thing, but in a really like, you know, like experiential and, you know, shall we say practical way of saying, hey, you can just laugh at that. <laughs> well, it's about accepting right? it. It's all about accepting it rather than trying to resist it. It comes to to accepting it. And if you invite someone in, then the faster you invite them in the faster the then they'll they'll want to leave then <laughs> <laughs> if you push them away like push them at the door they're going to fight to get in you know you can think of it that way too <laughs> right right because if you're pushing at the door you're engaging in this struggle which is itself like a form of hindrance, right? right, and, right. Mm -hmm. and, and I think like another way you can interpret this poem is as a warning to people that try too hard. <laughs> you know, they're trying so hard to be a good spiritual practitioner that they, they might have succeeded and not, you know, engaging in say a depression, you know, or a violence. But instead, they're engaging in shame, you know, shame and an inner turmoil, inner tension. And that is also destructive, even though it might be less destructive than depression or violence. Right. You know, and so, <laughs> you know, and so I'd rather, you know, if I could choose to, to, to have dinner with a serial killer or. Um, oh, thank you, Scott. Take care. See you soon. Bye bye. I I enjoyed. Uh, uh, I just caught the tail end, but uh, it, it was cool to hear you talk about it. Um, catch you next time. Bye bye. See you, Scott. Catch you later. Cheers. Um. So anyway, instead of taking this approach of you know I'm I'm gonna be the best Buddhist there is, I'd rather have dinner with that person, even though they're filled with maybe shame or self resentment etc of the aspirant that's so determined to aspire than i would someone that's just committing bad acts however the best is someone that is just relaxed about the whole process you know that's the the nicest person to be around you know of the three and hey if you've already achieved it you got nothing to worry about you know even if sometimes you're going to mess up achieving it though see that's that's a that's that's a that's a sticky word achieving right because it is. what what can be gained can be lost right what can be gained can be lost so 
it's you have to be careful with that word achieve. Really, really careful with it. Yeah, I understand what you mean from a conceptual perspective, like you, you know, make progression, you achieve, you know, experience and wisdom, etc. But every moment is fresh and new. So, so be careful about that achieve because there's an expectation that comes in, isn't it? It's like, oh, I've already achieved that. So why am I still running in the circle? You know, yep. it's, a, it's a new day. It's a new week. You're a new you. New circumstances. New dukkha. New whatever. It's like, so the achievement is a sticky word. Totally. Because achievement implies problem that was solved. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and the real, you know, achievement, so to speak, is realizing there's never any problem at all. <laughs> you know, you just invented it. Um, and so you can play with that word, too. Like another term you could use is you're on top of the mountain, king of the hill. Right. Well, a lot of these analogies that we use, I'm on top. I achieve. I'm the king. I'm the lion you know, I'm the whatever, that implies that there's some kind of a hierarchy, right? Achieve, not achieve, mm -hmm. you know, lion versus rabbit, you know, king versus subject, right? And the point is to go beyond that, you know, and so these words and this kind of, you know, points at, like even enlightenment, right? Like the word enlightenment implies non-enlightenment, <laughs> You know, like our words are very relative, you know, and I mean, to me, it comes down to yeah. that you can have these experiences, but they come and go, right? They come and they pass away just the same way as joy and depression and meanness and all this stuff comes and goes, whether so you you can greet enlightenment or you can greet non enlightenment. You can laugh at both. You can invite either in or, or whatever, right? It doesn't have to be, um, I mean, it could be these emotions or it could be existential states of consciousness. Either way, the poem, poem could still apply to those as well, right? It doesn't have to be focused on a hindrance or a feeling of satisfaction. It could be any of those, right? Absolutely. Welcome and entertain them all. Mm -hmm. I got one more one more thing, and then I'm gonna have to go and, and grab some lunch. Um, I really like the line, "He or or she could be gender neutral, <laughs> maybe clearing you out for some new delight." So there's the understanding in the poem. You could look at it both ways. Like either you are the container with all of this stuff inside that is being cleared out, or you could be the ego inside that's being cleared out. You see what I mean? Like you could be the environment and stuff is being cleared out of you, you the room, or your ego is sitting in the empty space and it's clearing the ego out. So there's a double, a double meaning there with clearing you out. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great... <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Thank you. And um, yeah, you know, clearing you out can also have positive and negative valences, right? There's, and what he's saying by for some new delight, one can say, ah, isn't it great not to have anything anymore, right? 
Isn't that just great? Now something new can come in, and that's marvelous, right? And then clearing you out can also mean, like, you know, getting punched in the face, right? You know, hey, you've been cleared out. So there's, like, multiple valences and, mm-hmm. you know, unfolding meanings for sure. But um, anyway, I think that's, like, a great way to, a great note to end on. So we've been going almost an hour and a half here which is awesome. But does anyone have like anything else to say or any thoughts? Yeah. Oh, I just, a uh, uh, joke that came to my mind right now is since the human being is a guest house, like, uh, uh, it's better to be present in it when, uh, um, let's say a visitor comes, be present to open the door. <laughs> yeah. I like, I like it. Yeah. Be present. Yep. <laughs> Get, get ready to clean the floor <laughs> if something happens. All right. Awesome. And uh, Rick, any last thoughts? No, no, I really enjoy this. This is a really great time for me to to, to, to jump in. Uh, this this uh, Monday at 3 is, is excellent. Um, it's just after I finished with my class, uh, maybe half an hour. Afterwards, it gives me a little time to uh, to do a quick uh, mindfulness practice, and then uh, it's nice to jump on and uh, and discuss these different topics. So I, I like I like this time, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm appreciate what you've decided to do here, Robert, with this. Yeah. Thank you, thank you both so much for hopping on, and yeah, I'll see you guys soon. All right, bye guys. All right, take. Take care. Enjoy. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.